0: Good morning, it's Monday, the 11th of September 2023, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top reports and themes for the day the G20 summit concludes with agreements on climate and infrastructure and praise for India's handling. How the potato or aloo has become a key force in our fight against food inflation. And more on food India's love and dependence on dal could set off a trade war shortly. And hmm. If you are over fifty, then you are more important for business than you think.
1: This is a core report
0: with Govindraj Athiraj. Praise for India's G20 summit handling. There are, of course, many takeaways from the just-concluded G20 summit in New Delhi, leading to the New Delhi Declaration. The key, of course, was that there was a declaration which was largely expected not to happen. One question that lingered around the rift between Russia and the West were the continuing war in Ukraine and the fact that China's President Xi Jinping skipped the summit in an apparent snub to India, which does not seem to have had the intended effect. On the other hand, India's role in bringing together the G20 on a range of issues seemed to have won the day. Bloomberg News quoted European officials as saying China shot itself in the foot by staying away from the summit, allowing India to cement its leadership of the global south and providing the US and Europe a clear path to strengthen ties with emerging markets. That's pretty much sums up one part of it. And then, quite significantly, the G20 also admitted the African Union, which includes 55 member states as a permanent member of the G20, among many steps attributed to India's leadership at the summit. Among other wins, the U.S. announced a deal with India, the European Union, Saudi Arabia, Israel and other Middle Eastern countries to develop an ambitious rail and maritime network across the region. So very broadly, what did the leaders of the G20 resolve to do at the end of the summit? Here go some key points which I thought I'll leave you with. So the leaders committed to one... Accelerate strong, sustainable, balanced, and inclusive growth. 2. Accelerate the full and effective implementation of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. 3. Focus on lifestyles for sustainable development, and I'll come to that shortly, and conserve biodiversity, forests, and oceans. 4. Improve access to medical countermeasures and facilitate more supplies and production capacities in developing countries to prepare better for future health emergencies. 5. Promote resilient growth by urgently and effectively addressing debt vulnerabilities in developing countries. 6. Accelerate efforts and enhance resources towards achieving the Paris Agreement, including the temperature goals. 7. Pursue reforms for better, bigger and more effective multilateral development banks to address global challenges. 8. Improve access to digital services and digital public infrastructure and leverage digital transformation opportunities to boost sustainable and inclusive growth. Digital infrastructure, by the way, comes up quite often through the report. 9. Promote sustainable, quality, healthy and safe and gainful employment. And 10. Close gender gaps and promote the full, equal, effective and meaningful participation of women in the economy as decision makers and better integrate the perspectives of developing countries. Now, a key focus has been climate. While there was no new language on the phasing down of coal from the previous Bali summit, the New Delhi Declaration did announce the establishment of a green hydrogen innovation centre, the tripling of renewable energy by 2030, and the setting up of a global biofuels alliance. To understand better what the various climate declarations running into almost 9 out of 37 pages talked of, I reached out to Dr. Arunaba Ghosh, climate expert and CEO of the Council for Energy, Environment and Water, Dr. Ghosh also serves on the Government of India's G20 Finance Track Advisory Group and advises the Sherpa track for India's G20 presidency that just passed.
1: Well, first takeaway is I'm very happy with the, with the final outcome overall. We've got a, not just a leader's declaration, but within that, we have an explicit set of paragraphs running to about eight pages on a green development pact for a sustainable future. This is something that India has been pushing for several months now, and I'm very happy that it's come together. Uh, Now, with that, of course, we have to understand one of the things that India wanted to highlight through its presidency was this whole issue of sustainable consumption. Therefore, the mainstreaming of lifestyles for sustainable development, how do we reduce our own individual footprints, but also how do we enable markets to create circular economies worth hundreds of billions of dollars. That's come through quite clearly. The other part that is quite clear is this tripling of renewable energy capacity. This commitment has now been made by G20 leaders to triple renewable energy capacity by 2030. And then linked to that is this acknowledgement that none of this is going to be for free and therefore you will need What is now estimated about $5.9 trillion for developing countries to reach their goals by uh, 2030. So, all of this put together are important elements of this package for green development. And I would argue that India is trying to send out a message that it can't be either green or development, especially as we come out of the pandemic, and that it has to be a pact. This is not a treaty. This is not an accord. Uh, This is not about COP negotiations. This is really a pact. This is about doing things collaboratively, cooperatively, rather than combatively.
0: To spend a minute on finance, uh, Arunaba, so the figure that was mentioned is almost $5.8 trillion before 2030. This is obviously a very large sum. You've also been talking about this for a while. So where does any of this come, if not all of it?
1: well i think it also becomes very clear that bulk of this will come from the private sector so how do we make sure that we create the conditions in our home countries to attract that kind of capital equally what should the developed countries do to ensure that large institutional capital investors from their economies do see emerging markets and developing countries as viable destinations for their capital now in order to do this The whole reform agenda of the World Bank is also something that the G20 has actively promoted. Discussions continue. In fact, next week, I'll be in Varanasi for the fourth meeting of the Sustainable Finance Working Group meetings of the G20, and the Finance Minister Central Bank Governor's meeting will happen next month in Morocco. But at the same time, there will be the discussions of the World Bank annual meetings. So, This aspect of finance, where a part of this is public capital, but it is used to leverage a large volume of private capital by de-risking the investments, that becomes critical. There is a lot of language around risk-sharing and de-risking facilities that are now needed. This is something that I and many others have been calling for for quite some time. So I'm very happy that it is there formally in the text. This now needs to be implemented.
0: Is there any indication that you could pick up, uh, Arunab, when we talk about principles and lifestyles for sustainable development? What could be one manifestation of that?
1: I think the way we should look at this is how do we count GDP? It's consumption, investment, government expenditure, and net exports. Now, let's ask ourselves, how much of this consumption can be sustainable consumption? How much of this can be sustainable investment? How much of it can be sustainable procurement by governments of products and services? This is what drives then that large economy. So whether it is food grains, so this whole push about the use of millets. And now, if you start procuring millets for midday meals, it suddenly creates a fast market. Take green steel. You know, about 20% of our steel consumption in India is by the government. If government says, I'm going to only buy green steel, Immediately, you create a market worth hundreds of billions of dollars for steel companies across the world. If you take automobile and transportation, the push towards electric public transport. So last year, 5,000 e-buses were auctioned in India. This year or by next year, maybe 50,000 buses will be auctioned. All of this demonstrates that sustainable lifestyles and sustainable development need not mean a restriction of your aspirations. It's just a shift of the type of consumption that you do. And thereby, some types of industries that have been built on a use and throw culture go into decline, and other types of industries come up. And that's the kind of economy that we wish for.
0: You know, there doesn't seem to be any new commitments on phase down of coal power or phasing down fossil fuels. I'm sure there were efforts, but uh, how do you see that going?
1: Uh, No, there were certainly efforts to uh, get language around phase-down of all fossil fuels. That did not come through, but the phase-down of coal, unabated coal, remains in in the text. So actually, that combined with the tripling of renewable energy capacity, at least from an India perspective, is commensurate with what India has been committing on its own voluntarily. It does, however, shine the spotlight on economies that are dependent on other fossil fuels that have been reticent in making such a commitment. And uh, I think the pressure will be on. It might have not come through in this leader's declaration, but the pressure will be on after the global stock take of the climate negotiations and perhaps next year's G20 presidency where Brazil, President Lula has already indicated that climate will be an important theme of their presidency.
0: Right. And last question, Arunaba. so what's next and what will be the kind of effort? So you've already talked about uh, going to Varanasi for a follow-up meeting, but in your mind, what are the two or three key things that everyone should be focusing on in the context of climate, in the context of some of the commitments that have been made or not made uh, in this declaration?
1: I call it the triptych of ambition, action, and acceleration. You know, uh, we get a lot of ambition and it's important. It's important to get an ambition of 3x increase in renewables, 2x increase in energy efficiency. But now we need to make sure that there is action that follows up with it. So that includes the vanilla renewables, the solar, wind, etc., cetera, et cetera, but also this whole new story around a global biofuels alliance, the story around a rules-based ecosystem on green hydrogen, which I have also been advocating for, for quite some time. All this needs to be now actioned through collaborative efforts. The acceleration part will only happen if we figure out something concrete on the financial de-risking platforms. If we get that, then I would ask your listeners to keep an eye out for are we just promising new ambitions or are we really acting on it and are we finding the money to accelerate our efforts?
0: Good note to end on. Uh, Thank you, Arunava, for joining me. Thank you. The Story of the potato. We've been tracking inflation levels quite closely, as you know. We spoke last week of how the cost of a vegetarian thali rose 24% in August and a non-vegetarian thali rose 13% year on year. Having said that, prices are now down thanks largely to the tomato, whose rising prices caught the nation's attention and caused everyone, including policymakers, to scramble wildly. Crystal Research says that 21% of the rise in thali cost can be attributed to tomato prices, which rose from 37 rupees per kilo last year to about 102 rupees per kilo last month. Prices of onion, chili, and cumin rose too, taking the cost of the vegetarian thali up, but accounting for much, much less. By the way, the non-vegetarian thali prices did not rise as much because of the price of broilers, which form more than 50% of the cost, did not rise as much. Rather, only one to three percent over a whole year. Now, speaking of prices that did not go up, vegetable oil prices are down 17% and potato prices are down 14% year on year, which obviously helped keep overall costs low. Now, we've spoken of vegetable oils or edible oils a few days ago and how imports of them are also touching record highs, but prices are stable for now. Let's now talk about the potato. There are some very interesting lessons in potato prices and potato management. To understand more about the potato and the overall breakdown of thali prices, I spoke with Pushan Sharma, Director of Research at Crystal Market Intelligence and Analytics.
2: So if you look at the volatility, the contribution is maximum from the vegetables and specifically tomato, onion and potato. And the reasons are some structural reasons. The reason why these crops see volatility can be linked to their storage capacity, their shelf life and the amount of processing that is done on these crops. Tomato and onion see the maximum volatility and potato the least amongst the three. And when we look at the storage capacity for these crops, we see that potato has the maximum storage capacity as a percentage of its production. That is followed by onion and the least is there in tomato. And the shelf life also follows the same order. If you look at the processing capacity, about 7% of the potato is processed, about 3% of onion and about just 1% of tomato. So had we sort of processed a little more of tomato when the prices were lower six months back when the prices were less than 10 rupees a kg, we could have arrested this price increase that we saw over the months of July and August. So clearly, more processing facility, more storage capacities, that's the need of the hour.
0: Are there any comparable figures, Bush for like internationally or anything? I mean, for example, you said 1% in the case of tomatoes, that seems like really low.
2: Right. Globally, countries have, You know, processing around 15%, not specifically on tomato, but in their food categories. Some of the progressive countries.
0: Got it. Larger question, how are you linking or what kind of linkages do you see between this food plate cost or thali cost and overall inflation numbers, which we're also watching?
2: So if you look at CPI, food has a significant share in that of around 40%. So clearly, you know, food contributes extremely meaningfully. The CPI numbers that we've been seeing over the past few months. And within that, cereals has a significant share in absolute terms about 10%, vegetables and dairy about 6%. But what one can see is why we see a 24% increase in the veg thali cost for the whole of August. If one were to look at the numbers only for September, that tapers down. September as well as the last week of August, that tapers down to about 10% increase. And if one were to look at it month on month, the 6th September thali cost would be about 16% lower than the whole of August last month. So that's a sign of relief for the consumers. And we could see some tapering of the Thali inflation that we're seeing over the last couple of months.
0: So you're saying the first week of September is showing 6% lower than August. But can you give me a figure for earlier in the year? Because I think you're either comparing with last year or last month. So
2: I'm comparing it with last month in this case. So it's about 16% lower when I compare the sixth month Thali cost. With the August 23 data. If we talk about July, the West Thali was around 34 rupees. In August, it went to 33.8. Last week of August, it was about 30 rupees. And by 6th of September, it went to about 28.3 rupees. And what was it, let's say, in March? So by March of this year, if we look at the Thali was around 25 rupees. It stayed around 26.5 rupees till about June. And we saw a sharp jump from 26.5 to 34 levels in july
0: okay great so now june 26 rupees july peak of 34 rupees august 33.8 and september 28 so it's already beginning to taper off at least at this point that's correct last question could we therefore assume that the overall inflation numbers for august will come in lower
2: uh, for august because the whole of august still saw elevated you know vegetable prices we could still see you know inflation numbers could potentially be higher But from September onwards, considering food has a 40% bearing on inflation and we're seeing a tapering in thali prices, there could be better news coming in the month of September with other factors, other components remaining at the same level.
0: Right, Pushan. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. From alu to dal. The G20 declaration we spent some time on just now also spoke on commitment to support developing countries' efforts and capacities to address their food security challenges and work together to enable access to affordable, safe, nutritious and healthy diets and to foster the progressive realization of the right to adequate food. It also spoke of open, fair, predictable and rules-based agriculture, food and fertilizer trade, not impose export prohibitions or restrictions and reduce market distortions in accordance with relevant World Trade Organization rules. Of course, it's not easy to not have export restrictions when prices are skyrocketing through the roof like in India right now, or the perception that they might. To remind us all, inflation in prices of rice and pulses have been running at 13%. Within pulses, inflation for Tourdal is at 34%, followed by about 8% for urad dal and 9% for moong. So let's stay with dals and maybe a little more of Tourdal. It's now clear that pulses and dals are one of the biggest categories of foods to be hit by monsoon vagaries and international trade hurdles. Domestic sowing is less compared to last year, and anticipation that the crop could be poor is driving up prices. Total sown area of pulses is down about 8.5% as of September 9th, year on year. And the total area of pulses cultivation has fallen too by about 11%. El Nino is playing a role here too. On the other hand, Mozambique, from whom we import, has put a floor price on exports of dal. Now, this is a little more complicated and there's some interesting backstory to it, which I will come to. But overall, the situation is tricky. More than that, the present situation, dire as it is, is also showing up the government's moves as good, but not good enough. For example, we were wise to tie up with several countries for imports of pulses, but we may not have had a more composite strategy that addresses both the shortages as well as the vagaries of climate. To understand what has gone wrong and why, I spoke with Bimal Kothari, chairman of the Mumbai-based India Pulses and Grains Association an Apex Body for India Pulses Trade.
3: Looking at the supply and the demand, this year the supply has been definitely the constraint for particularly for tur and urad. Last Kharif crop, we didn't have enough production for both tur and urad. We have seen the shortfall in the production of tur and urad. That's why we have seen the prices going up in both the pulses. If you compare it with the other pulses, most of the pulses are rolling, other pulses are rolling at the minimum support price. Or little bit above the minimum support price. But uh, these pulses definitely are much above the minimum support price, particularly tour. Availability of tour has been really down this year due to the last rip crop. But you see, whenever there is such shortage in the country, you uh, have an of any particular pulse, the government has allowed the import. So tour import has been allowed till March. 2024. So, we are importing these pulses from Myanmar and from East Africa. Myanmar this year didn't have a very large crop. It was around 250,000 tons. So, which started the harvest started sometime in the month of January and we have been importing this from Myanmar. And East African crop has been just harvested in the month of August and now the shipment started. So, we'll supply, we'll look the supply, we'll see the supply around third to fourth week of September and I think there will be good number of supply, good supply in the month of September, October, November from East African countries. Last year, we imported about 700,000 tons from mainly Mozambique, Tanzania, Malawi and Sudan. This year also, we look at the, during this financial year, we are looking at the similar quantity. And since they harvest their crop in August, most of the arrivals come in the month of September, October, November and December. Though the local supply at the moment is really, I mean, very tight. But think the import from East African countries will ease the supply. And I think uh, the demand during the festival period would be made from the imports of tuber from East Africa. Regarding the wood earth, of course, we again had the similar situation. The crop was badly damaged due to the heavy showers during the harvest last year. Our crop got reduced. So there has been pressure on the prices. Minimum support price is around 70 rupees per kg. And uh, we have seen in the last few months, the price has been ruling around 80 to 85 rupees. So I don't think the prices are very high above the, if you look at the minimum support price, it's around 15 to 20%. We always know that 15 to 20% prices could always vary if you look at the minimum support price. This year, because of the El Nino effect, you have seen very good rains in uh, July, but August was completely dry. The rainfall was not at all there in the month of August in the sowing area, in the planting areas. So I think the production of Urad and Moon will be hit. But we do not know what will do there is. But definitely the production would be down. So again, we will have to depend on the imports of Urad from Myanmar because Myanmar is the only country which produces Urad besides India. And, you know, then if we have good rainfalls during the month of September, then I think Rabi, we can see some good crop in Urad because the prices have been very good.
0: And the farmers will be encouraged to grow during the rainy season. Right. So, can I come back to the imports from East Africa? So, you mentioned, for example, the uh, imports from countries like Mozambique. So, I understand that some of these countries are also increasing export tariffs. So, is that likely to affect the cost of landing or landed prices? Definitely, definitely, definitely. What happened that a few years back, We
3: Government of India restricted the import of Tur because we had good production then we signed mou when our prime minister visited mozambique so we signed mou to buy 200000 tons annually from mozambique and that time they badly needed us so we in fact the government of india we have favored their farmers and uh, and their government and you know encourage them to produce tour because let me tell you one thing the tour is one product which is only consumed in india 95% of the production wherever It comes to Indian market already. So, the countries who are producing tour, the only market is India. So, the government of India has given a guarantee that we will allow the import of at least 200,000 metric tons, despite the restrictions. So, but now since last two years, we have faced problem in the production. This year, what they have done, we understand that some people have influenced the government and uh, they have put up these prices of $900 per metric tonne. So they have fixed the prices of 900 dollars per metric ton this is the minimum export price so which they have done in accordance with the Indian market that was not expected and this decision is definitely by the Mozambique government is not called for and they should not I mean because government of India supported when they needed us and when we are in uh, need of the tour they have fixed this minimum export price looking at our prices otherwise we would have seen the prices would have come down
0: in Indian market also you're saying that they're not honoring the price fixed earlier and matching it to Indian market prices, is it? Is that what you're saying? No, it is not like this. The government of India
3: has fixed the quantity. Price discovery was depending on the demand and supply. That was a fair and reasonable way of price discovery, which was totally dependent on the demand and supply. First, this time, they have fixed the minimum export price. Looking at the Indian market, they saw that our prices are very high domestically. We do not have much to her And our prices are rolling high. So looking at our prices... Back-to-back, back, they have done their calculation and fixed the higher minimum export price. And that is why, you know, we cannot see much of the tour prices coming down. Otherwise, last 2-3 years, we have been regularly importing tour from East Africa. The prices were coming down. And this year, of course, situation is a little different. So anyway, we will be seeing a lot of arrivals in the coming months. And I think during festival season, our demand will be made through the imports. Once the arrival starts, I think price may come down by few rupees a kilo.
0: And could other East African countries also increase their export tariffs, you feel, or their prices? No, they have not done the prices in accordance with the market
3: conditions. So, they have not fixed any prices like Tanzania or Malawi or Sudan. They have not fixed any. And we are regularly importing from this country. But their production is not so large. Out of these 700,000 tons, what I said, 460,000 tons have come from Mozambique only last year.
0: Right. So, this is a bit of a googly of a question, but, you know, India banned exports of non-Basmati rice and also lower variations of Basmati rice. So, how does this affect prices overall? I mean, how do other countries see this when we, for example, are obviously not exporting, in this case, non-Basmati rice? India
3: was the largest exporter of non-Basmati rice and many of countries, they are depending on the imports from India. So, suddenly, this export ban of non-Basmati rice has really caused, you know, I mean, they have been very uncomfortable. They have been very, but you see, we also have look at our population. It's a 1.4 billion population of the country. Because of the, you know, effect, the eastern sector, we could not see much rain, which is one of the important rice bowl of our country. Because of the drought condition in the eastern sector of our country, the, the government has taken the precautionary step and they have imposed this restriction. So I think the government of India is looking at the first local supply that, Because as you are talking about the food inflation, already it is 13%. So this situation, you know, global warming and global climate change, this is giving a solution that we need to have a long-term policy All this. We cannot have a a Niger policy. These are all jerk decisions. So you need to have a long-term policy because we all know that we have to feed a very large population.
0: Thank you for joining us today, Bimal. Thank you. And hmm, why 50-plus folks are cool? People aged 50 and older are responsible for a larger share of economic activity than before, says a new Global Longevity Economic Report put out by the AARP or the American Association of Retired Persons set up in 1958 and aimed at empowering Americans over 50 in their lives and pursuits. The report that covers about 76 economies says in 2020, the 50-plus population contributed $45 trillion to global GDP, or almost 34% of the total. Moreover, at the end of this decade, that's 2030, the contribution of the 50-plus population to global GDP will rise to an inflation-adjusted $65 trillion, or 36% of GDP. Through its spending on goods and services, the 50-plus population supported a third of the world's jobs in 2020, or over 1 billion jobs, generating $23 trillion in labour income. Growth will be the strongest in the next decade, as the number of jobs supported by older people is set to jump by nearly 20% to more than $1.2 in 2030, or 35% of the global total. Interestingly, nearly one-third of the global impact on GDP generated by the 50-plusers is driven by cross-border spending on products and services. The report also argues that in the five largest consumer product categories, the 50 pluses were responsible for half or more of global spending. This includes health, perhaps not surprisingly, miscellaneous goods and services, housing, utilities, foods and beverages, and transport. More than half the spending on recreation and culture and furnishings and household maintenance is driven by the 50 pluses. And the report concludes, in its executive summary at least, that policymakers and business leaders will need to develop clear visions and strategies to address this huge and expanding market. Now, all of this is, of course, unlikely to be found on the pitch decks of any tech-based consumer-facing company, not just in India, but elsewhere in the world. Perhaps it's time to put on a fresh set of glasses. Now, speaking of 50 pluses, a few weeks ago, all of Bollywood and the entire cinema exhibition industry was pretty much written off by several pundits. And now it's all swung back with an intensity that would surprise even the most die-hard stock market veteran. All thanks to the 50-plus, Shah Rukh Khan's latest film, Jawan, which has crossed a record 200 crore rupees in just three days of its release, and was set to cross about 300 crores overnight, including international earnings. Its primary language is Hindi, but it's also earning in Tamil Telugu as well. The film seems to have learned a few tricks from the southern films and adopted to create a world of memes and highly Instagrammable sequences. More on this, of course, in a few days as the dust settles down. That's it from me. I wish you a great week ahead and do visit www.thecore.in and see our latest reports, interviews and analysis. It's all free for now, but may not be for much longer. Bye for now. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in Thank you for listening.